For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, here with Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Aaron, you look like you just came from the tropics. Uh... I'll, I'll say this. Uh, the new Pineapple Street Media offices are on uh, Willoughby Street over there. It's uh, nary a block from Fulton Street Mall, and I have been uh, doing some shopping. <laughs> Looks so, like you're ready for whole, summer. This whole outfit cost me like 60 bucks total. <laughs> Got a Jimmy Jazz. <laughs> for, uh, those, for those of you at home, Aaron is wearing a like neon pink palm tree. I would sure. describe this outfit as like did some white collar crime, now live in St. Kitts, like only wear Hawaiian shirts outfit. <laughs> AKA the Aaron Lammer dream. <laughs> um who's on the show, man? Who's on the show? Uh this is a a live, a, a rare live long form special uh with uh Reeves Wideman, who is a writer for New York magazine. I think his best known piece uh was a story about a father whose child died in the Newtown shooting um, who had been kind of a conspiracy theorist themselves and then became the subject of uh, Alex Jones-led conspiracy movement um, to discredit the idea that his uh, own child had ever lived. Um, it's an incredible story. Yeah, that People story, bring it up with me all the time. It's such a disturbing story. Yeah. It also is way ahead of its time in terms of now those families are suing. And yeah, and yeah, I was going to say that the uh, in many ways, I think that story is sort of a uh, prologue to the current lawsuit against Alex Jones that's happening. Um, I don't know what, what the status of that lawsuit is. I think they just filed. Just filed, yeah. All right. Uh, thanks to Pitt Writers, uh, who put on this live event. We yeah. taped in Pittsburgh. Always a great time. The Cathedral of Learning, cathedral our home away Bar- from home. It's like a, a Batman uh, prop. It's an incredible building. This is like the fifth one, I think, that we've done. Fifth live yeah, show. Yeah, I feel like we've been there. We've gone there so much that like half of my uh, body fat uh, originates in Pittsburgh. <laughs> we always we always eat well, and we are always treated very well by um, Jean Marie Laskus as the head of Pitt Writers. Um, I don't think people really know that um, the interns for this show come from the Pit Writers program. Every single one of them. So if you have, uh, if you ever clicked a hyperlink in our show notes, uh, you have benefited from uh, this partnership, and uh, we really appreciate all the help they uh, give us in getting this show out every week. Aaron, where else might you uh, click a hyperlink? Well, the best way to send out hyperlinks is through electronic mail, and. <laughs> There's a great little outfit called MailChimp that actually can help you out if you want to start an electronic newsletter. Uh, an, an electronic newsletter is like a mimeograph, <laughs> but it comes to your electronic mailbox. And the great thing about this little outfit, MailChimp, is that you don't even have to pay to send out your electronic newsletter until it gets um, multiple uh, electronic mail subscribers. <laughs> and uh, they help support this show, and we really appreciate it. And now here's Aaron with Reeves Weidman.
It is good to be back in the Cathedral of Learning. Hello to everyone. Uh, hello, Reeves. Hi. It's good to be here for the first time. I think this is the first time I've ever done a podcast where I like spent the day earlier on a plane with the person I was going to talk to. Does it feel any different? It does. I feel we were like in we're... economy. Yeah. Well, obviously, I was in the very back of the plane. Um, so I wanted to talk to you first about. Um, I've been following you as a writer for a while, but when I started looking at your stories in sequence, um, you wrote a story for New York last year called uh, "The Dirtbags." The Dirtbag Lefts. Men in Syria. Uh, you recently wrote a profile for them called Gray Hat. It was about a hacker. And all of these stories, if I was going to try and find a connective thread of them, they seem like little internet blurbs, like the kind of thing that you might read a sentence or two and be like, wow, there's this like American from San Francisco who decided to join the Kurdish resistance or mm -hmm. this hacker shut down a world attack almost by accident. And then they kind of come and go. Mm -hmm. And you've kind of taken these stories and exploded both the story and the person into a much more nuanced, deep hole. Is that like an intentional uh, way that you go about stories? Like, how do you find these stories? Well, you've picked two stories that my editors found for me. Ah, interesting. So I'm grateful to them okay. uh, in large part. But that is something that I've done on other stories. You yeah. Know, you'll find other stories I've done for New York. For instance, one time I read an AP story. It was about a, a professor in Florida who had been fired by his university largely because he had become a Sandy Hook conspiracy theorist. And it talked a little bit about a father of a kid who was killed in Sandy Hook who had sort of led this charge to get this professor kind of kicked out of this university. It was just sort of a, a news brief. And then I kind of looked around. There had been a little bit written about this dad. There was a story in The Trace, uh, which is sort of a publication that writes about guns. But it felt like there was more to that. And when I called this guy on the phone, when I called this father, you know, we started talking for a while and it turned out that he himself used to be a conspiracy theorist prior to Sandy Hook. And of course, as we sort of know now, after the Sandy Hook shooting, there were a lot of people who felt like it was, uh, you know, we're pushing this theory that it never happened. And this dad used to believe stuff like that. And then this happened to his son and it sort of obviously changed his life. And then he went on this campaign. So that was an example of a story that even I, when I started looking into it, I didn't even know it was sort of as interesting as it was. But I think that's, yeah, that's very much one... One way of finding good magazine stories is finding a person who's just kind of at an interesting moment in their life that someone notes in a news story and then saying, I want to find out more about them. What are the challenges of reporting in, in this case of like a Sandy Hook kind of situation or the story about a hacker where the news media has already done its cycle on this? So you're not on totally untouched terrain. You're in some ways graffitiing on top of graffiti. Right. I mean, I think usually in these stories, they're a little bit offbeat, you know, like this story, we had read a, a piece in the in the British press, this computer hacker was from the UK. And so we felt like there was a little bit of room. But then I think what you're trying to do is to find out who this person is. It's almost like what they've done that's made news is why you're interested in them. But then what I think we at New York Magazine and a lot of the stories that I do are interested in is finding out in this case with this computer hacker, he was a 23 year old kid. Uh, stopped a massive cyber attack and then a few months later comes to the U.S. and gets arrested by the FBI for allegedly basically perpetrating a different cyber attack. 
So he's now living in house arrest in, or varying levels of house arrest in, in Los Angeles. So we wanted to know who is this kind of new person who is 23 years old. He stopped a cyber attack from his parents' uh, house in like the rural UK. And then is also, you know, is the kind of person who could be capable of doing damage. Like he sort of represents kind of a bigger, you know, I think there's a lot of people who are sort of like him. And we just kind of wanted to know, like, what is this person like? How do you navigate the experiences of the individual and the experiences of the subculture and the niche there, where in some ways he seems emblematic of, mm-hmm. of lots of gray hat hacking? On the other hand, he's also saying in the story a lot like, I'm an individual. In fact, I don't really like most of these guys. Yes. Like, right. What? Where does that leave you in terms of portraying someone? That's a good question. I think... I'm not sure that you want to try to generalize a person. You know, I I think what I'll try to do is I'll try to get the person I'm writing about to kind of talk about their world because I don't know anything about the hacker world. I'm I'm sort of diving in and and that person is a way to to kind of get into that. And then obviously you want to talk to other people and they can help kind of put that person into some bigger context. Something like hacking seems like a kind of a high research bar, particularly because it's a secretive world and it's a world in which you can't like fact check like, Hey, did you make that malware? Just like calling here. Um, (laughs) How do you seek information in a place that doesn't want to give up that information? Yeah. That there are people that do that and it's really hard work. There are cybersecurity journalists who, you know, have sources there and their level of expertise is way beyond. I think anything. you quote Brian Krebs. Yeah, he's sort of, he's a really interesting figure. He's basically made a career of kind of. I was going to say, he's quoting some of these stories. Are there other cybersecurity journalists or is it just a, all Brian Krebs? <laughs> I think he, he's certainly one of the biggest, but there are other places. Motherboard um, is a great website that covers a lot of you know hacking topics and mm-hmm. and they they have reporters who who know this inside out um for me i you know there's i guess there's like two ways of looking at it one is accepting your sort of limitations like i know that i don't have the technical expertise to like dig in you know we don't at the end of this story as a spoiler alert figure out 100 for sure whether he did this thing that he's alleged to do or not. You talk to people who who you think might know and you sort of make the best judgment. And then, you know, I think some of those stories are the most interesting. You'd like to solve the mystery. I, yeah. I think, did you set out to solve the mystery well, when you did that? I, I was going to say there have been like a number of stories that I'm either working on or, or have worked on where there's like a mystery. And yeah. you're trying to solve it. And a few times, you know, the, the editors will say like, we'd really like it if you could figure this out. But it's okay if you don't. And so, you know, you, you kind of put in as much of a good faith effort as you can. And then, you know, from there, just kind of try to tell the story as honestly as, as possible. When you started boiling down all of this hacker world into that story, mm. like what stands out when you're trying to define a subculture in that way that has its own codes, its own views of the law? Like part of what it seems like you achieve in that is being like, this might sound weird, but this isn't that weird yeah. in this world. Yeah. Like, what details do you fixate when you're trying to bring the like code of ethics and mm-hmm. the unspoken cultural assumptions of a subculture into a story like that? Yeah, I think your radar goes off when you see something that you don't see in normal life that seems to be normal to this person. Like one thing in cybersecurity, like anyone who is a hacker talks about OPSEC a lot. And OPSEC is 
basically just means privacy and I'm not going to put stuff on the internet and post on Facebook and, and whatnot. But like, it's meaningful in a number of ways. Like the fact that they use OPSEC is meaningful because I think it's not only this kind of lingo in the hacking world, but it also shows the way that the community views itself, which is like OPSEC is like kind of a military or at least sort of has this military connotation, like secret agent kind of thing. And I think in some parts of that world, people like to view themselves that way and sort of understandably so. So that's an example of like just kind of a weird thing that, you know, in a longer piece, we'll take a minute to explain because it does sort of have, you know, tell you a little bit about who these people are. Yeah. I mean, it's a paranoid worldview, but the story kind of suggests it's a justifiably paranoid worldview. I think that's right. Like probably most people who are paranoid have some reason. Well, I don't know. I'm trying to, th- I've, I've written about other people who are paranoid, sort of, you know, the people in the Sandy Hook conspiracy theory yep. world are definitely paranoid. And I think probably unjustifiably so. The hacking community, definitely so. And, and frankly, I was paranoid even digging into it and sort of made sure that my own OPSEC was uh, secure because... How did you secure your OPSEC? Uh, well, I couldn't possibly share the oh, details okay, okay, okay. of that. But, uh, you know, two-step authentication is... Uh, a good thing to have. Now you've ruined it. Yeah, I know. Now you got to start all over again. Yeah, upgrade. What? Why does someone who cares about OPSEC agree to a magazine profile? That is a very good question. And I don't fully know the answer to that. I think that in Marcus's case, the case of this hacker, you know, I think we, we talked for a while before he agreed. Um, mm-hmm. We actually talked on Twitter DM for a long time, just kind of me talking to him about the story, me just kind of talking to him casually about his situation, how things were going, kind of building up a rapport. I think he felt his story hadn't been fully told in these kind of shorter news um, releases. Uh, Some of the press he'd gotten had been bad. And I think he hoped that, you know, maybe there was something good. Uh, He did uh, mention several times uh, that he really didn't like when he sort of became famous, um, unexpectedly so. Uh, He really didn't like all the photos of himself uh, on the internet. And I think uh, some part of him was uh, not upset at the idea of a magazine taking a picture of him. Oh, he was, uh, he was, uh, he was hoping for a higher quality photograph. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I'm sorry if I I blew his cover there, but um, you know, so I don't know. I think it it always surprises me sometimes when people agree to these stories. You know, I think you can always argue that there's a benefit for them, but a lot of times they're opening themselves up to something that they then don't have control of and trusting me or whoever the writer is to be responsible with that. And it's a pretty serious level of trust. Hey, I'm going to pause things here for just a moment to tell you about Radius from Thermacell. It is the world's first rechargeable zone mosquito repellent. You turn it on and there's a 110 square foot zone that just does not have mosquitoes in it. You don't need any kind of a smelly lotion. It uses heat and uh, each rechargeable battery and repellent cartridge gives you 40 hours of protection. I personally, I have a lovely backyard, uh, but my wife is susceptible to horrific reactions to mosquito bites. uh, So normally I don't get to enjoy it. This summer, I intend to. Thanks 
links to Radius and their 100% satisfaction guarantee. You can too. In fact, you can save 20% as a listener to this show by going to thermocell.com and entering code LONGFORM. Again, thermocell.com code LONGFORM saves you 20% on the Radius from Thermocell. Thank you, Thermocell. Hey, can I also tell you about the Self Journal from Best Self? If you've been listening to this show, you know that it takes true discipline to make it as a writer, in addition to courage, commitment, and focus to get through your creative blocks and get the stories out of your head onto the page. If you are looking for structure and organization to help you write a bestseller or get that article out, check out Self Journal. It is more than a planner. It's a powerful productivity and success tool that will help you structure your day around your goals and the tasks that are important to you. No more excuses that you don't have time to write. Instead, you can be intentional with your day and make time for creativity, invest in yourself, all that kind of good stuff. It's loved by writers. So I want you to check it out by going to bestself.co slash longform. As a listener to this show, you will get 15% off the self journal again at bestself.co slash longform. Thank you, best self. Here I am back with Reeves Weideman. You wrote a, a story a few months ago also about basically the family that got insanely rich off of oil yeah. is now attempting, this is the Rockefeller family. Yes, small family. Small. Uh, yeah. <laughs> is it now attempting to put its money and weight and influence behind exposing the way that climate change was hidden by the companies that they made their fortune from? Yeah. So in a case like that, like they're in some ways an advocacy group. Mm -hmm. So the trust relationship is a bit both directions in that they have an objective that they are trying to achieve that getting a magazine story written yeah. about can help. But your motivations and their motivations aren't exactly aligned. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting case where, you know, that was one where I read a short story. It was actually a story that one member of the Rockefeller family had written about this case where they were trying to get Exxon, the source of all of their wealth, to come to grips with climate change. And to New York Magazine, that sort of, it was interesting to us as sort of a family drama. You know, the policy of it is obviously interesting and important, but you could cover that in a thousand word New York Times story. But we wanted to kind of see, get these people to kind of grapple with like, what does it mean to be attacking the source of your family wealth? And then, you know, in talking to them, they sort of acknowledge, you know, yeah, we think that we've made this effort to try to get some publicity for this. We would like to get more than we have. So we're willing to agree to this. And, and then I think there was some tension in, in terms of we wanted kind of some family drama. You know, we wanted to kind of get at, you know, hey, you know, it sounds like your cousin maybe doesn't agree with you. And they, you know, were sort of hesitant to kind of talk about that side of things for a variety of reasons. And they would rather just kind of stick to the sort of talking points of what they're talking about in regards to climate change. Does Is there some sort of a critical like threshold for you where you're like, I need them to be this open about the family drama or at least something outside of their own campaign, mm -hmm. or I will be like writing a press release for this campaign? I think, yeah, you need a little of that. But, you know, with that story, there's kind of ways to report around it. You find one family member who doesn't want to talk to you about it, you find another who's a little more open. And, you know, that's a family with many, many people. So there is some threshold you have to get to. I don't know if I've ever stopped reporting a story because it felt 
actually I'm sure there are examples I'm just forgetting, but you know, at kind of that level, you kind of know there's something and you know, as long as you can pry it out, then, you know, I think you can kind of run with it. How did you get into this stuff? Into journalism. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to be the sports columnist at the Kansas city star, which is where I grew up. It's not too late. It might. Well, I guess maybe not. They, they have some good columnists still that seem sort of entrenched, but I, yeah, I, I could get back there to that. Um, I, I loved sports as a kid and was not um, very good at them. And this was kind of my way to get close to that, at, at least in, in sort of my memory. And I think, you know, I liked writing to some degree, but that I think that was it. But I liked sports and I liked being close to it. And this was the easiest way that I, I found. What were your first few writing gigs? Uh, high school newspaper, college newspaper, the sports editor. My first article for the college paper was about the field hockey team. I'd never, yeah. I came from a part of the country. I went to an all boys high school. There was no field hockey. I'd never seen a field hockey game before, but I went and covered it. I still um, have never seen a field hockey yeah, game. It's a really fun sport to watch actually. Yeah. I would recommend it, but, uh, I don't know. Pitt presumably has a field hockey. Field hockey? Anyone, Any anyone game? from the field hockey team here? All right. Come on, guys. We put it, yeah, <laughs> advertising in the wrong places. But yeah, and then, you know, I covered sports a lot through college and then, and then kind of got tired of my, or realized that my dream was not what I actually wanted. Um, and that, you know, covering a sports team day to day was kind of a grind. And, and that while I liked sort of telling the stories about athletes, the kind of interesting you know profiles of interesting people i didn't care that much about analytics i didn't care that much about covering the day-to-day -day thing so and that was sort of freeing and at a certain point in college and kind of going on after college i realized that my interest had grown beyond the topic and that you know i was just kind of interested in doing interesting stories about interesting people. Yeah, you, have, you haven't written that much about sports. It's for, been a while. The, the people at the Kansas City Star aren't going to take notice and basically get, not, get in their, uh, their, their viewpoint here. The Kansas City Star was one of roughly 25 newspapers who rejected me from their summer internship oh, wow. when I was in college. I, I hope someone from the Kansas City Star is listening I hope right they're now. Listening. You could have had a read Weidman. We, we can talk. Um, but yeah, I got rejected from everything. Uh, and I kept <laughs> at least some of the letters as, you know, kind of like bulletin board material. Well, tell me about like, so you went out and just applied, like you opened the book and started applying. Well, this was back in the day when like you just like applied to newspaper internships. I mean, this was 10 years ago. And so, yeah, I applied to so many internships and, you know, a handful of jobs, fellowships. I kind of yep. applied to, to everything. And the only one that I got after college, I, during college, I'd done a little work for the Boston Globe. I went to school at Boston College doing sort of sports work. I actually answered phone calls at the sports desk. The primary part of that job was, uh, the main purpose of the job was to get like high school scores. Like the football game would end between, you know, Newton and Milton and yeah. they'd call and here's the score and here was the best player of the game and we put that in the paper what most of the job was was they somehow like this number had gotten out into the public in boston uh, i think they published it in the paper but people started to realize they could call and just complain about boston sports and so there would be people who would call every night and some of them were this is literally the most boston story I've yeah ever yeah definitely they were kind of like really <laughs> sad guys they were kind of fun there were some funny guys it was all guys like yeah i mean you know as, as far as as i remember but I had a late night college radio station and sometimes the guy who um, drove the snowplow would call me. 
Always requesting Led Zeppelin, hundred oh, percent of the time. Yeah. Well, he was consistent. So uh, let me ask you a question about that. When you're getting rejected by the Kansas City Star, yeah. your number one dream, way, along with dozens of other yeah. places. Did that make you think you might not be good at this or this might not be the thing for you to do? I don't think that moment in particular made me feel that. I would say I feel that once a week up until like today. Okay. I pitched something last week that got rejected, you know? Yeah. Um, and that it, it happens all the time. Like, do you want to, would you job. be comfortable I talking don't. about? Okay. I don't. Well, or, would, guess, or, or is there, or can you give me an example no, of a case? That, I, I mean, mean, I guess I'll... It's got rejected. Come on. Mm, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'll tell you about it. It was, I mean, it's kind of silly, but you know, I'm, I'm a writer for New York Magazine. I mostly write for the print magazine, but occasionally I write, you know, I also write for the website and, you know, I think they would like me to do as much writing as I'm able to do. And I am still a sports fan, even though I've moved on from sports writing a little bit. And yeah. my Kansas Jayhawks were in the final four. Oh Yeah. And there were, you know, I don't know how closely you followed the tournament, but there was the most famous person in the tournament was Sister Jean, who was sort of a um, familiar, uh, yeah, nun who was representing Loyola Chicago. And then she got trash talked by Jalen Rose's hundred year old grandmother from the University of Michigan. Meanwhile, my Kansas Jayhawks had one of the players' grandmothers had become famous all season for just like dancing really crazy and yelling a lot in the stands. And then Villanova, the fourth team in the final four, is kind of the lamest one a little bit, but it's just a random fan who like is he's like 75 and he waves his hat around at the games and he's become the dancing hat guy. So I was like, you know, for our readership who doesn't really care about sports, why don't we do, just do like a quick little thing, like choose your final four team based on, you know, which sort of retiree you identify most with. <laughs> And this is just, I can't believe I'm telling you I, I love that you, that yeah. I thought you weren't going to tell me the story because it was like, oh, I might take it somewhere no, else. No, this like, was just like, this like story, a bad idea. The story idea. is done. It's over. No, you're never going to be able to use no, it now. No, it's gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, I still, if any, if the Kansas City Star is interested, yeah. I, you could go interview all these people. Why was this reject? I, this was not considered good enough for the New York Magazine and, website? You no, know, I think uh, there's probably a variety of editorial reasons that it uh -huh. didn't seem, you know, our audience doesn't read, we do, we do sports from kind of a particular angle. I think our audience isn't necessarily that sports yeah. interested. Um, so, you know, I, honestly, and I said this in my pit, I mean, this was a particular example where I just kind of had a crazy thought literally at like 11 o'clock at night. And just sat down and wrote it kind of because I was just interested. And I didn't particularly care if they said it or not, which is a, I, coming at it from sort of a privilege. Like I have a great writing job. They are yep. going to pay me anyway. But, you know, I could go back through their um, stories I pitched that one magazine has rejected and another has picked up. You know, I pitch stuff all the time kind of to New York Magazine. Some are kind of half-baked ideas. Some are fully formed. Some, that Sandy Hook story, you know, they were initially hesitant about. And then... It took several months, actually, for that to kind of when some to accept it. when someone is like kind of lukewarm on a story, are they generally like, well, maybe you could take it more in this direction, and that would be interesting to us, or are they just like come back with something else? I don't know that I've ever been like so diverted far from what the topic was, but certainly in some cases they'll be like, yeah, this seems interesting. But we want this specific part of the yep. story, and this is sort of the portrait we want. And so, you know, I think that is pretty common. Like, I think for the, you know, the Rockefeller story is an example of, you know, there's a lot of like policy debate in this, and climate change is a huge issue, and we want to talk about that and why this is a big deal. But we're interested in kind of 
what's it like to be a family doing this kind of thing? That's the particular angle. And so my, my editors will say like, go for it, but this is kind of what we're interested in. Yeah. I mean, the Sandy Hook one is kind of incredible thinking back because the issues that are brought up in that story have really come to the forefront since then with the Parkland shooting and just kind of the like overall spread of conspiracy theory as a plague upon America. When you were doing that story, like what interested you in that story at that time? I think what interested me, you know, that story, I reported that story during the 2016 campaign. And, uh, you know, I first went down to meet Lenny Posner, the father, I think in the spring. So it was kind of sort of early in the general campaign. And then it was only kind of in the midsummer that it became clear that, you know, Alex Jones and Infowars were kind of uh, supporting the Trump campaign and that it was somewhat reciprocal. And that was certainly an example of a story that I think had a broader broader implications that I didn't see initially. I was interested and I, I think I, I think most good stories come out this way. Like it just seemed like this guy, this father was in a, a really crazy position. He was trying to get people to believe that his son had in fact been killed in this massacre. And, you know, I've talked with other writers about this, like trying to, you know, say now you were like, oh, we want to do a story about conspiracy theories. Let's go find a good one. Like, yeah. That's impossible. Like, you know, I, I have, I've cut down on this and I know other writers who do this, like you have Google alerts for like topics you're just interested in, just like hoping that one day, like the perfect thing's gonna pop up and it never does. What are some of your uh, alerts? Uh, artificial intelligence is oh, one that, that one, just that one, that one's, You need some smaller buckets. Yeah, too. well, I just, I just, I'm interested in like company tech. Uh, this is another one that came up today. Like tech companies that pivot to like things that are like completely different from what mm. they do. So what is your search term? Pivot? Company and pivot. Too much again. I know, <laughs> but I'm, but like maybe, maybe. Yeah. I feel like you need like pivot scandal Pivot scandal. yeah, yeah oh, like God, you, you need, you need to like start God. joining some things here yeah this is an embarrassing one i you know i was kind of like and i made this one a while ago like when board games kind of started being like uh, cool is maybe a strong word but people started <laughs> playing board games again like settlers of Catan and whatnot yeah. and i was like oh like there's got to be a way to write about like how people are into board games and so i now have a board game and scandal uh <laughs> um and I think I have another one, like, you know, there was like a cider boom, uh, like hard cider. Wow. And you're, co uh, you're covering all the hottest topics in America. Well, I think, yeah. I mean, are you just I, waiting for I that like, one cider story to I come down the pipeline? Yeah. I think that I, I'm waiting for, I had done, I had actually just done a story on this um, bourbon heist in Kentucky. Great story. Uh, thank you. And uh, did that come through a Google alert originally? No, that was, um, cause you know, again, see, bourbon heist would be a great one. Like if you had been just sitting true, true, true. on bourbon heist for a period of years. And if that worked out, yeah. Well, so I, yeah, I did this story about these employees at some distilleries in Kentucky that stole a bunch, like a ton of expensive bourbon. And that was one that, you know, came from a, a news story in, in Kentucky and, and seemed worth looking into. And then I was like, you know, uh, yes, people are really into cider, but like that's kind of boring. Yeah. Uh, but maybe if there's a heist... Uh, then I could do a story. So I still, I think I still have that one. Uh, and then, okay. you know, every now and then it pops up and it's never anything interesting. Okay. So if they're not from search terms, where, where do most of your non, uh, from editors ideas come from? You know, a, a lot come from reading something and small and, and 
thinking there's something interesting there, but they come in random ways. Occasionally, I guess I do go looking for things, and I think especially for sports writers, well, for any any writers, if you can kind of look ahead, like, you know, I did a profile of Simone Biles for The New Yorker before the last Olympics, and, you know, I was doing sports things for The New Yorker, and I, kind of a year ahead of time, I sort of was like, the Olympics are coming in a year, who's going to be big? And so if you can kind of plot out things, I, you know, that's just sort of how I found that out. But then another story I did for New York Magazine, I was hanging out with a friend of mine who has a 14, 15 year old uh, stepbrother in New York City. And he was talking about a girl that he had never met or met like once, who was another high schooler, but who she thought was like the coolest high schooler in New York City, based entirely on her Instagram presence. And this was like four years ago when I think it was like, we were in early days of influencers and whatnot. And so, you know, I was just sort of talking to him. I was like, this is so weird that this person you're talking about is famous only in New York City, only among high schoolers, but not within one high school. This kid didn't even go to her high school. It was just she had become famous among like kids in high school in New York City. And so we did a story about the most famous high schooler in New York. And that was just from talking to my friends. You know, it, that, that was actually one where I, I wasn't immediately like, this is a story. Yeah. I had to kind of sit for a while and be you know, try to think like, it's not just interesting that this girl has a lot of followers because she really didn't have a lot compared to an actual celebrity or even like a mini celebrity. But it was interesting that relative to her other normal high schoolers with, you know, no special skills or whatever that she was famous. So that one took, you know, I was sort of, I had to think how to pitch it. And so I spent a little time doing that. Okay, so we lost your story there where you had gotten rejected by every mm. newspaper. Then you're writing sports stories think, for The New Yorker. What <laughs> what happened between those two um, things? I don't think I lost confidence because I think I was just kind of used to rejection. You, you just sort of, I think, get used to it very quickly. Um, I did a number of internships after college. I did sort of a series. It was 2008. There was a recession, if you can remember that. And I did a series of internships. My first one was at Sports Illustrated. And I worked on the website kind of... Uh, making slideshows mostly. Yeah. This was like my first look behind like the big media curtain where like as a kid growing up reading Sports Illustrated, you think like anything Sports Illustrated says about sports is like the definitive take. And then they, I went to Boston College and while I was there, they were like, hey, you know, we don't have like, we have like top 10 like pit athletes of all time, you know, top 10 Kentucky athletes of all time. We don't have top 10 Boston College. Can you make it? And I was sort of like, wait, like, it's just, I just decide as like a 22 year old, like, sure. And so, you know, it was a lot of kind of doing that. And I, I got to do a little, I covered the Coney Island uh, 4th of July hot dog eating contest, among a few other things. And then uh, I had, this is the one internship that I really plug to anyone who's looking for them is I went down to DC to work at the Chronicle of Higher Education. They, they pay you, they treat you well, uh, and they let you do cool and interesting work. So I went there. Came back for an unpaid internship at Talking Points Memo, political website back in New York. And, you know, there's no real, like, I was just kind of taking what I could get, frankly. Like, yeah, like, what was, like, psychologically, was no path. you're yeah. at the, you're at the rock bottom of the uh, employment <laughs> market and you're like, oh, um, actually what Sports Illustrated really is, is like making, like trying to SEO every yeah. college's best athletes. Like, did you have a moment of disillusionment? Like what, what makes you take that third unpaid internship well, at that they, juncture? They were, 
they were going. Oh no, sorry, some of them were paid. Sorry. No, no, no. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I did two, two paid, one unpaid. Um, they did offer me, in my memory, a there was at least a, a semi offer of kind of a producer job, which at the time was kind of like you make slideshows, you write headlines, you you might do a little writing, and I just didn't want to do it, and I felt like you know I could go down to the Chronicle and do some. I, I felt like I guess I still had time to take a chance. And, you know, the Chronicle was a paid gig and I didn't really know anything about it, but it had a good reputation. I still don't even really understand what the Chronicle it's, of Higher Education is. The Chronicle is. of Higher Education is a newspaper that covers higher education. Um, many of the faculty members and administrators here read it religiously. And the great thing about higher education is it you covers everything like uh, sports, politics. I was the politics intern, so I was yep. covering stuff on Capitol Hill. The night of Obama's election, I was anxiously awaiting the returns on ballot initiatives in Colorado about education. It, you kind of cover everything. Um, yeah, but I, I think I just felt like I didn't want to just take a job just to take a job. You know, I was fortunate enough to graduate without any debt. And I was willing to kind of you know, live cheaply and try to survive for a little bit. When I came back to New York to work at TPM, it was unpaid. I lived in my um, aunt and uncle's basement for six months in New Jersey and took a bus in every day. And at that point, to get from there to the New Yorker was complete and utter luck. I was actually, the, the Kansas City Star still didn't want me, but uh, the pitch, which is the Alt Weekly in Kansas City, I'd applied for a fellowship there and was basically had taken it. And... Uh, my mother owned a store in Kansas City, just like a small, it's called the new dime store. It replaced the old dime store. It's like a mom and pop kind of CVS sort of thing. And a high school. Literally a mom and pop. CVS. Yes, indeed. Yeah, right, right. Um, and uh, my dad's an architect. He redesigned the whole thing. And uh, it'd been in Kansas City forever. And one of her high school classmates, my parents grew up in Kansas City, happened to walk into the store because he heard it had reopened. And his name is David Owen. He is a staff writer at The New Yorker. And they hadn't seen each other in like 25 years at that point. But they started talking. He, my mom told him I was in New York trying to get into journalism. He said to give him a call. And uh, he got me an interview at the fact-checking department in, wait, wait, wait. at the New Yorker. What was he doing at the New he Dime Store? He was just store? back in Kansas City, which is where I grew up. If this detail and, wasn't a movie, I'd be like, eh, well, it's a little bit of a stretch. Interestingly, <laughs> he, he did later write a really lovely piece for the New Yorker about like smells of through your life and how they come back to you and whatnot. And he, uh, my mom and the New Dime Store appear in that piece. Mm -hmm. So how's the new dime store going? Doing? It's uh, it's still alive. It's still doing well. My yeah. parents are out. They, okay. they got out. Well, while, while the but. dime business was still good. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Moved on to quarters. So you became a fact checker at the yeah. New Yorker and uh, we've been wanting to get a fact checker on the mm. show for a while. Maybe we will actually get, I think we have plans to get the actual head of the fact checking department on the show, but I'm going to use you Great. for a short bit. Cause for I know now. you, you're you, like, a lot of people, like I've done like a few like month stints in fact yeah. checking, but you're the only person I know who I ever like met and you were like, oh, I'm a fact checker. Like, <laughs> Did I say that? I think that's when the first time I probably, met you, yeah, I think I you were, was, yeah, you're like, sure. I, I check facts. Yeah. What's fact checking at the New Yorker like? Uh, it's a great job. It's a strange job. It is a sometimes intense and difficult job. Do they put you through a boot camp at the beginning? You, the interview process is really strange. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you about that for a second. I mean, it's multi-stage. Um, you have sort of a kind of normal interview, just, you know, what do you want to do? What's your experience? Blah, blah, blah. And then they put you through like basically like a civics quiz slash like general knowledge quiz. Like, 
what legal principle did Plessy versus Ferguson establish was like one that I remember. That's one you have to get that from memory. You can't look it up. You can't look it up. No. Yeah. It's it's like, it's kind of, yeah, it's not like a research test. It's a like, do you have a base level of knowledge? And I think some of them were like, how many senators are there? Like we want to establish that like people are, have kind of a general level of knowledge. And then there was a long time, a person who had been in the department for a long time, and he would ask, at least in my interview, and I I believe for others, he asked two questions. One was whether you liked classical music. And I think that I can appreciate it, but I know very little about it. So I said no, which I think like won me, you know, at least points for being honest and not trying to BS him. It's kind of like shifting the question to like a different daily double. You're like, I'm going to (laughs) pass on the classical music and it's sports. There's sports possibility on the board. Athletes (laughs) of the 1990s, please. Who is the Um, number one Boston College athlete of all time? (laughs) I can tell you. (laughs) Actually, to be honest, I don't. Oh, it's got to be Doug Flutie. I'm pretty sure. Doug Flutie. Maybe someone could look it up. That is my slideshow. That is not Um, a strong athletic record if Doug Flutie is your number one athlete. I hope. Now I'm embarrassed if there's someone else I'm forgetting, but um, he won the Heisman Trophy. Okay. Uh, um, And then the last thing, which is just, uh, they would ask. what are the three best movies of all time? Which, as you'll notice, is a subjective question. And I honestly don't, I think I maybe was like so nervous, I took it like literally, it was like, well, of course, Citizen Kane is number one per, you know, the AFI list or whatever. But there actually were three right answers from this older gentleman who had been at the New Yorker forever. And they were... Was Richard Brody giving you this interview? It wasn't Richard Brody. No, it was Martin Barron. He had been there for a long time in the department. There's only three right answers? Yeah. The three right answers in my my memory, and I hope I get this right, were Sunset Boulevard, Treasures of the Sierra Madre, and a Fellini movie that I believe is La Dolce Vida. Wow. So the only options were movies that came out before you were born. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, when I threw out Dumb and Dumber, that, that <laughs> didn't uh, didn't register. So, so like when you're fact checking in an environment like the New Yorker, I mean, New Yorker is one of the few places that has a standing fact checking mm-hmm. uh, staff. What kind of insights do you pick up at that level of granularity when you're going that deep into New Yorker story? Like, I'm assuming this is kind of like your first like real professional, like other than the internship. It was my like, first job. Yeah. First job. Yeah. yeah. So like. I'm trying to, I felt like when I had my first job and you're kind of just like, right. like grab your brain is trying to grab like order and like rules and understanding. Like, what do you like learn about how you ch- fact check a New Yorker story? And what is the process of fact checking a bunch of New Yorker stories do to you as a writer? All good questions. I think, you know, one interesting thing, like we would, we would get questions from people at other magazines, like teach us how to fact check. Yeah. And there are tips and tricks. Um, for one thing, like nothing is ever like the first ever. There's always probably something else or mm. the only or the most, you know, whatever it is. So like you learn to like look for superlatives and make sure that they really are true. But the secret to the New Yorkers facting checking department is they put resources behind it. And there's, I think to this day, 16 or 17 full-time fact checkers. You know, most magazines, you know, have a handful. And so... You know, there is no shortcut to it. It just takes manpower to go through and do this. Um, I do think that fact-checking made me a much better reporter and writer. Um, As a reporter, it helped me just learn how to get information. Yeah. As a writer, it kind of helps you learn, like, how 
to um, how to sort of triangulate different details to like connect different dots to determine that something is true. And I think as a writer, I've noticed that it sort of like frees me up a little bit because I know how to make sure that the sentence that I am writing is true and know how I'm going to back it up when the time comes. And I think in a weird way, I mean, that sounds somewhat limiting, I guess, to have to like stick to the truth. But I think once you understand like how to, the ways to do that, it actually is very helpful as a writer. Did you encounter stories that were really difficult to fact check? Or in Mm -hmm. fact, like I'm thinking of like your hacker story Mm -hmm. where the very premise of the story is resistant to facts. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there, you know, I'm struggling to sort of remember some of the most difficult ones, but it, you know, but the one I remember is I, I, this is kind of a random memory, but I was working on a story about, um, poaching elephants in Namibia. And there was this kind of this one guy who had become sort of a vigilante against poachers and it was sort of controversial. And one of the fact checkers, you know, he's in Namibia. It was like a long story, like very complicated. And the fact checker, like the, the conversation was sort of so intense and lengthy. It was like hours long that we were like bringing him Gatorades uh, <laughs> while he was sitting there, you know, on the phone kind of going through this. But yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, there's sensitive things that you have to worry about. You know, I'm not totally sure it's too different than being a reporter in kind of those sensitivities, but you learn kind of how to how to deal with people and you know, it's a lot of managing personalities, frankly, between writers and people you're writing about. And you sort of serve as intermediary kind of, you know, helping making sure everything's right and, you know, as right as it can be. There always seems to be this disconnect when I think of fact checking where you're not really supposed to read people direct mm-hmm. quotes. We were talking about this at lunch. Yeah. I, I remember like uh, once in my very, very brief tenure, like calling this like, like it was some sort of an um, or or mine in Russia, uh-huh. and I, I was basically the quote was like, "This mine is a scam and a f- like fraud." <laughs> and I was like, "Would you agree with the characterization <laughs> that this mine has not been factual in its reporting <laughs> of its profits?" Yeah. Um, like how, how like in a New Yorker story, mm-hmm. some of these things are pretty big and pretty sensitive, mm-hmm. and the tipping of information, quotes, and what's in the story could potentially shift politics, yeah. move markets. Like, how do you ascertain that a story is true without mm-hmm. revealing what that truth is? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we, in the training that you get, you, you know, you're told not to read back quotes sort of word for word. And, and most of that is because you'll get a lot of people, uh, scientists are actually the worst to deal with on this front where they want to like reword their quote to either be more technically precise or to, uh, you know, make themselves sound better. You know, frankly, going somewhat against policy, and I think this is something where you, you know, as you kind of learn to do the job, you learn kind of the, what you can get away with, or or rather, you know, just kind of, once you know the rules, you can kind of break them a little bit. And I I would often just read stuff to people. And and I, I think I would be pretty open for a couple of reasons. The main one was, I think it's a luxury to go through the fact checking process that a lot of writers don't get. And you basically can have all the fights up front I would rather me and the writer and the editor and our lawyer and the whole apparatus of the magazine sort of get together and, you know, if a subject's pushing back against something, we can push back. Just because someone objects to something doesn't mean, you know, I have to, okay, well, that's gone. Yeah. You know, then it becomes a conversation. And But I'd rather have them get upset up front 
about something than, than, you know, after the fact, because then there's nothing you can do about it. And if you did kind of screw up or someone screwed up, then it's a real problem. How did you go from fact checking to actually getting to write for the New Yorker? I started doing sports again. I, I think the first, this was kind of the early days of the website and, um, they, I don't think I'm embarrassing anyone by saying they would kind of take anything that they could get kind of for free because, you know, at, at that point, the magazine was still the focus and they were trying to get what they could. And so I offered to, I think the Yankees were in the World Series and I was like, can I go cover it? And they were like, sure. You're like, there's just one old that? man in the stands <laughs> does a crazy dance. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a grandma in, in left field. I'm never going to live that one down. Um, and... I just went up and, and did it. And, and I started sort of writing for the website, often about sports, occasionally about other things. And eventually that turned into kind of a regular, very uh, poorly paid sports blogging job, basically for the New Yorker, where I was kind of writing sports pieces twice a week, which was really a grind. Um, it, it, I mean, it, it's a great job in its, its own way, but coming up with uh, things to write about sports that New Yorker readers would care about was a challenge um, in its own way. And from there, I, I sort of started pitching Talk of the Town stories. Often they were sports related. And I think, you know, one thing that I sort of looking back, I, I think it was useful for me in my career and at The New Yorker specifically for me to have kind of sports as a thing that I, you know, that I knew about and that people could think of me as. And, you know, we were joking about this earlier. I mean, I in the interview process, we talked, I talked to my then future boss a lot about sports. And at least my impression was always that there are people in the department who like speak Russian or Chinese or multiple languages or have PhDs. And my expertise was that I know what a foul ball is. And you're like, I've been to at least one field hockey yeah. game. <laughs> and it is difficult. It is as difficult for me to fact check a piece about modern art, which is, you know, not something that I'm an expert in. Uh, it's as difficult for someone who doesn't know anything about baseball to fact check a story about baseball because you just don't, you have to look up what is, you know, what's a strike. Um, so anyway, I think that did help me in terms of, you know, having an expertise or some, at least something that people thought of me for helped me in terms of getting assignments in terms of when there was a sports thing and one of the much more famous writers at the New Yorker couldn't do it. It often trickled down to me. And I think that was helpful then, you know, also as I kind of started to freelance elsewhere, most of my early freelancing was about sports. So I was kind of getting back to those roots sort of out of necessity. When you start working at like a more industrial scale like that, where you're like, all right, two sports piece a week. And I also yeah. want to pitch some for talk of the town. Like does the architecture and skeleton of these kind of pieces reveal itself to you where you're kind of like, you see anything, you're like, oh, I know how I'd make that into a Talk of the Town piece. Yeah, I think Talk of the Towns in particular are very formulaic, or you kind of figure out sort of what note you're trying to hit. You're trying to have a little setup, and then you want to have three or four funny moments, and then you get out of there. And, yep. and that's really all you have. And, and, you know, there were a couple times where I was, there were only a handful of times where I was sort of frustrated by the sort of limitations of that and felt like a piece could be longer. But then in the end, you, I think you realize, I mean, one thing I've started to recognize is, someone who writes mostly for print magazines, but also for the web, is that uh, word counts are a good thing and that limiting yourself is a good thing. Um, at New York Magazine, we'll, you know, we'll sometimes run slightly longer versions of stories. 
and I've begun, I think early in my career, I would kind of push for that. And then I have since started to realize, you know, there's a reason we cut that stuff out. And, and in the end, it makes for sort of better stories. So I think doing the shorter Talk of the Town stories, which are basically, you know, 780 words, roughly, if I remember, was helpful in kind of like, you, no matter how much material you have, you got to fit it into this structure and, and make it work. When you then broke out of that structure and started doing features, mm -hmm. I remember like you wrote like a profile of Bill Hader at some point around that. Yeah, I did a did a Bill Hader uh, men's journal profile. Yeah, like what were your first experiences when you did have to like you couldn't just get in and get out and be like, ah, oh, here's one funny thing that Bill Hader said. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think with doing kind of like longer features, I, I think there there's a possibility of struggling with like writing you know if it's a four thousand word feature in theory that's like five little talk of the town stories and so you have to get away from like if you're going to have like four or five sections just make sure that they're not just like here's a fun scene and here's another one and here's another one like trying to make sure that you're actually telling a yeah. story and that it all coheres and things are actually adding onto each other i think you know is useful and you're now a staff writer for the New Yorker or for New York rather. Yeah. What's your rhythm like now? I, you know, am mostly writing features for the magazine. I'm working on a couple at a time. You know, there's right now I'm interviewing a bunch of people for a story I'm working on um, and kind of in the reporting phase. And another one, I'm in a protracted now months long negotiation for access. And then, you know, there's another story that I like have been working on slowly for now like six months and it's just kind of a story with no, you know, it could kind of in theory be told whenever I get around to finishing it. Um, and so I sort of do that when I can. So it gets to a point where you kind of have things in, in different phases. I don't know that I have a rhythm. Uh, it all feels very uh, doing whatever is sort of in front of me. Yeah. I mean, so when you wake up in the morning and you've yeah. got the like, negotiation and you've got the six month old one and like what how do you decide what uh, document you open on your laptop the, uh good question i am very much guilty of doing the thing that seems the easiest and most enjoyable as opposed to the thing that needs to get done yeah um and that could go for a hard phone call that yeah. you kind of want to put off because there's other calls you could make um that are going to be easier for whatever reason uh writing is always something that should be put off uh or shouldn't be, but but can easily be put off. So you know, I I, I do have a the, the luxury of, you know, New York is 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 very generous in in letting me kind of spend time on pieces. But I you know I wake up and I, I guess you know thinking about my process now, one thing I'm guilty of, which sounds like bragging, but I think is actually a bad thing, is like too much reporting and making too many phone calls. I think it's it's hard for me to sort of give that up because I've had so many instances in my career where you make a phone call that you weren't sure whether you should make and it ends up being great or you stay an extra 10 minutes at some event that you think you've gotten everything from. Like talk of the town stories, that would happen all the time. There'd be like a person at some scene I was at and I'm like, I don't know if I need to talk to them. And then I would and it would turn out to be great. So it's kind of this thing I can't kick of... Um, recognizing like, okay, I really do actually understand this subject. I need to just sit down and write. So my last question, I think you brought up the idea of like doing what you enjoy, like what brings you joy in this process? Like what part of this job is fun for you? I 
the thing I like most about this job is that, I mean, the running part is painful in a lot of ways, but when you get something right, I think it's really, you know, I have done uh, small dances in my apartment as when I come up with something that really works. And, you know, that's a good feeling. And I think you can get that in a lot of other ways, but I think this is one way to do it. Um, but I think the main reason I love the job is reporting and the fact that you get to go out into situations that you wouldn't otherwise get to as your job. And I'm someone who's like, gets a little antsy if I'm just on a vacation sitting around and I'd much rather go somewhere weird and kind of have a purpose. And so, you know, just feeling like you, you can kind of go anywhere and just see anything um, and talk to anyone is like, is a pretty cool way to live your day. Right on. Well, um, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thanks to everyone for coming. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer. Thank you to our intern, Tyler McCloskey. Thanks to our sponsors, Thermacell, uh, Self Journal from Best Self, and of course, MailChimp. Uh, thanks very much to Pit Writers, who hosted us for this great live event. Thanks to Jean Marie Laskus over there. She runs the writing program at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, thank you to everyone who bought a t shirt. We will see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.